I still remember that sentence, and I took such joy, such pleasure out of connecting a palindrome and a basketball player that I thought, this is something I want to do when I get to college. This is something that I want to do in the rest of my high school career. I want to write stories that caress the words. Today's Machining World podcast. I'm Noah Graff, and I'm here with my co-host, Lloyd Graff. We plan to interview many different kinds of people on this podcast, and today I'm going to start by interviewing Lloyd. He's the owner of Graff Pinkert, our used machine tool business, and the founder of Today's Machining World. I work alongside Lloyd in both businesses, and he also happens to be my dad. Dad, how would you summarize today's machining world? Today's machining world is blog-based. Primarily, it's personalized journalism. By that, I mean that we discuss a variety of topics. It could be the machining industry. It could be business uh, on a more broad gauge level. It could be health. It could be a personal story, personal philosophy. It could be any number of things that we think will relate closely to our audience, which is primarily people within the machining industry, but also people who have found out about it and can relate to the machining business. What type of topics do we cover in today's machining world? Well, if we just look at things we've discussed recently, um, we've talked about tariffs, doctor-patient relationships, Uh, my radiation therapy treatment, talked about uh, the NCAA basketball tournament. One of the things that I've been a little disappointed in as far as writing the pieces is that I haven't done that many in-depth interviews with interesting people and related their stories. I think with a longer form podcast, we'll be able to bring out personal stories that will relate to the people in our audience. I think it'll expand our audience and it'll expand us by learning about interesting people and their provocative stories. In addition to doing the website, we both work in Graf Pinkert. You own Graf Pinkert. It was started by Leonard Graf, my grandfather, your dad, back in 1944. 1941. 1941. And uh, why don't you tell everybody a little bit more about Graf Pinkert, what we do? Well, first, Graf Pinkert gives the podcast, gives the magazine, gives the blog credibility. It ties it to the machining world. It ties it to people in business because rather than simply being observers, we're participants in the industry. We use machine tool dealers, and therefore we get a chance to deal with small business. We deal with larger businesses. We deal with people who are disposing of equipment and we deal with the people who are buying it and we deal with the people who are repairing uh, machines in the field. So therefore, we get a real sense of what's going on in the machining industry, both in America and around the world. Noah, you're traveling all over the world frequently, so you get a sense 
of what's going on in the precision machining industry in Europe, in Asia, in South America. Right. We're inside the industry as opposed to just reporting on it from the outside. Today's podcast is brought to you by Graf Pinkert. Looking for a screw machine, rotary transfer machine, or CNC machine? Graf Pinkert's got you covered. When you're buying any used machine, you're taking a risk. So it's important to buy from someone who knows their stuff and who is going to give you straight information about what you're buying. Graf Pinkert is a family-owned firm that's been dedicated to selling great machine tools to the turn parts industry for 75 years. It specializes in the top multi-spindle brands, including Index, Schutte, Gildemeister, Tornos, ZPS, Acme, and Wickman. They also sell a variety of other types of used equipment, such as CNC Swiss, CNC turning centers, and parts washers. Machine tools are complicated. If you're going to buy one, you should go to people who are knowledgeable and committed to the industry. Learn more at www.graffpinkert.com. That's www.graffpinkert.com. So go back in time now. How old were you when you first started, uh, when you first wrote your first story? Well, actually, I had written pieces for the Reader's Digest that were published when I was 12. I wrote uh, letters to the editor to the Chicago Daily News when I was 12, 13, 14 years old. What were you writing about? What were you writing them about? God only knows. But, uh, of course, I thought it was interesting, and, and I thought that other people would find it interesting. Evidently, they did because they published it. In high school, actually, it was the beginning of my journalistic career as a sports writer. It really uh, started with a disagreement between me and my baseball coach. I thought that uh, I had a great arm. I thought I was going to be the next Kenny Holtzman. I thought I was going to be a pitcher for the Chicago Cubs. And I had a little control trouble when I was playing high school baseball. Did you, you threw sidearm? I threw sidearm. I threw overhand. I had a varied delivery. A lot of arm slots. A lot of arm <laughs> slots. And, uh, you know, I thought I threw hard. I thought I had a breaking pitch. But I had played very little competitive baseball. I would played Cub Scout ball. So I thought I could play varsity baseball. And, uh, you know, I, I was good enough that uh, I got to pitch in a couple games. And uh, my uh, the coach didn't think I was doing a great job. He took me out. I got pissed off. I said, I really don't need the baseball team, and I quit. I, I, it's, it's really hard for me to imagine you quitting anything, let alone baseball. You really must have not liked the coach. I didn't like the coach. I had played uh, basketball with him, and I thought he was uh, not the brightest guy in the world. And, uh, and then he was the varsity baseball coach, and I, this, I was a junior in high school. So had you played and baseball? I had not played ball in the fresh soft years. So I tried out in my junior year, and I thought I should be a starting pitcher. Well, that's a lot of chutzpah, thinking that you could be a starting pitcher on the varsity, having not even played freshman, sophomore. Why didn't you play freshman, sophomore? I think I didn't really want to play out in the cold. Aye, aye, aye. You know, they played in March and April. It was freezing in Chicago, and I thought, I don't know if I need this. I quit the baseball team. I was looking for something to do. I w uh, the tennis team already was competing. So I said to myself, ah, you know, let me do uh, the uh, U High, the University High School uh, newspaper, the Maroon. 
I think I can be a sports writer. They need, were in need of a sports writer. I volunteered. I became a sports writer for the Uhi Maroon, and I really enjoyed it. I wrote stories about the baseball team, the tennis team, stories about basketball, too. What I remember most, actually, was how much I enjoyed words. There was one paragraph, one sentence that I remember, which really launched my sports writing career. There was a basketball player who played for the Glenwood School for Boys that was in the private school league. That was like an alternative school for kids with problems? It was. The kid's name was Arara, A-R-A-R-A, and he was the star of their basketball team. Did you play against him? I did play against him. Actually, I wrote up a story. So were you writing stories about basketball games that you were playing in? I think I was. That's a little strange. I know. But I love it. Uh, Mainly I wrote columns about it. I didn't write about directly about the games. But anyway, I noticed that this guy's name was a palindrome. A palindrome is where it's spelled the same way, frontwards and backwards. And he was also a very swarthy kid. He had a sort of an oily, dark complexion and dark, oily hair. So I don't know what possessed me, but... (laughs) I wrote about him, and I called him their greasy little palindrome. Greasy little palindrome. This was really, uh, uh, you know, a crude piece of journalism to call another basketball player a palindrome. But I just couldn't resist calling him a greasy palindrome. And I still remember that sentence, and I took such joy, such pleasure out of connecting a palindrome, and a basketball player that I thought this is something I want to do when I get to college. This is something that I want to do in the rest of my high school career. I want to write stories that caress the words, where you fall in love with the language, where you have fun with the language. When I went to uh, the University of Michigan, I went out for the newspaper again, and I loved writing stories that were fun. Other people wrote stories that were news. I wrote stories that caressed the words. And this was my passion. I enjoyed it. And then I loved the whole Michigan Daily environment. It was politically charged. This is the midst of the uh, buildup of the Vietnam War. There were all kinds of anti-war stuff, things going on at the Daily. And I was a part of it, even though I was... uh, in the sports area, I was there as the political stuff was going on. And actually, I was in one of the first sit-ins in Ann Arbor uh, of the uh, administration building. But more, I was half journalist, half sitting in. You know, Mm -hmm. I wanted to be a part of it, but I want to be able to write about it too and know that this is an experience that I want to cherish. Actually, I was just watching uh, the movie The Post Mm -hmm. over the weekend. And I took such delight in their pictures of the Washington Post, 1971, where they were still using linotype machines and hot lead. I used to have great joy in going down into the basement where they would set... They had their own setting machines at Michigan Daily? Yes. We had four linotype machines. I became friendly with the linotypists. I would read the galleys which were made after the hot lead was made. What is a galley? 
the galley is the proof, is the is what's going to go into the newspaper, but you get a chance at the last second to read it to see if there are any errors. So I would read the galleys and make corrections, and they would then go to, I remember the guy's name, Kermit, and ask him if he could uh, make a new line of lead. And then you had to manipulate the lead so it would fit the columns. Uh, it, it was an art form. It was so, totally different than... Uh, the way we do things today. There was really a physicality to the, to the newspaper. It was printed right there, right there underneath the war room of the Michigan Daily, which wow. is one floor above it. So you'd go down the stairs where they were uh, linotyping. They'd put it in the columns. You'd read the galleys. You'd make corrections. And then it would go to the printing press. And how do you feel about the the art of journalism with that process versus today? Do you do you have a preference? Uh, it's easier today. I mean, uh, the the linotype machine meant uh, you had to have a lot of people. It was expensive. Right. It was a collaborative effort. But yes, it was it was collaborative. But today's uh, editing is still collaborative at least as we do it. Actually, I think things are better today. Even though there was an earthiness, there was a physicality about a newspaper that uh, being printed virtually right in your right before your eyes that was thrilling. Yeah. And I never did get over that excitement about uh, the Michigan Daily being published right while I was there. If you stayed till 3 in the morning, you could see it be rolling off the presses. So... Then uh, you graduated, tried out for the Chicago Cubs. <laughs> yeah, that was uh, sort of thrilling. It, it was also sort of weird. I mean, I knew I wasn't good enough to make the Cubs, but I wanted the experience. I wanted the thrill of, getting, of going to Wrigley Field uh, so I had I'd written the Cubs, and I said, you lost your uh, Jewish pitcher, Kenny Holtzman. Couldn't you use another one? Is uh, that the exact expression you used, something mm, like that? Yes. <laughs> and they said, well, if you think you're that good, we'd like to see you come out for a tryout. So I came, and uh, I didn't have a uniform. Everybody else had uniforms because they had played. Um, I see a pattern in this. This is parallel with your high school career, isn't it? <laughs> they had... You know, regular teams and all. I didn't have any team. I didn't have any uniform. So I had to go out and buy a uniform, but I didn't have a number. I I came there, and I remember the uniform was this heavy wool thing. And it was totally white, right? Just blank? Blank, yes. I had no number. You couldn't get that today if you wanted to get a blank uniform. I was numberless, uh, which was probably appropriate. But I remember um, I was in the old... uh, The old clubhouse? The old clubhouse, yeah, getting dressed. And I remember this fellow who was getting dressed next to me, and he had his high school uniform. He was from St. Viador. He said, yeah, I was offered $4,000 to sign with I've forgotten who. But he said, I turned it down. Now I'm getting a tryout with the Cubs. Hmm. And I'm thinking to myself, hmm, <laughs> I'm in with people who know how to play the game. But anyway, I got out in the field. I went into uh, the bullpen. I didn't get to pitch from the mound. and um, You did or you didn't? I did not. I pitched from the bullpen mound. Ah. And um, 
I don't know if they ever timed me, but uh, the ball, as it was wont to do, moved around a bit. Uh, right, control, again, so like high school, you had right, control my con- problems. My control wasn't pinpoint. And they said, why don't you go and play in a few leagues and then come out next year and that's we'll take a pretty, look at you. That's a pretty nice way of, uh, diplomatic way of doing it. Yeah. So then, if your passion was writing and baseball, how did you end up where you were? Well, I had worked summers for Graf Pinker, for my father. I had worked six summers, I believe. Uh, so I was pretty familiar with the company. I was somewhat familiar with the machinery business. Uh, my father wasn't, you know, like pushing me to join Graf Pinker. Uh, he said, if you want to try it, I'm okay with it. If you don't, I'm okay with it. I ended up going to law school for one year, but that was a fiasco. I didn't like it. They didn't particularly like me. Contracts was a total mystery for me. And uh, so I dropped out of law school. Uh, But my journalism professor at the University of Michigan had told me, Lloyd, if you ever want to come back and get a master's in journalism, all you have to do is call me. I'll arrange it for you. So it was easy. Why didn't you go for the master's right away? Because I thought law school was... uh, a more prestigious profession than being a journalist and had a better potential for earning. Also, it was three years, and um, my goal was to stay out of the Vietnam War for three years. So that's how I started. In, uh, actually, I got into Northwestern, which was a prestigious law school. It was considered one of the top ten in the country. So I went back to Ann Arbor, and uh, then I had the opportunity to get into the Illinois National Guard I went to basic training. Which had been your dream. Well, not a dream, but a hope <laughs> that I would get, that I would be able to evade uh, the draft. So I, I went to Fort Jackson for four and a half months, basic training, and uh, my training is uh, uh, laying telephone wire on telephone poles. Uh, I thought, you know, I told them I was a communications expert, and they said, good, you can uh, lay wire on telephone poles. so i learned how to climb telephone poles at fort jackson and then i I went back to ann arbor to finish up my master's and met uh risa my wife i graduated with the master's but i thought i'm going to try graf pinker if that doesn't work i'll go uh, work on a newspaper no was one reason you went to graf pinker because you had just gotten married i had not gotten married at that point i was trying to convince risa that we should get married I did Graf Pinkert because I really liked the machinery business. I, I, I found it fascinating. I found deal-making really interesting. And also I found the travel interesting. But mainly the idea of being able to buy a machine and find a buyer for it, I found really, really something that played to my strengths. Mm-hmm. Something uh, where I could use the mindset that I had as a writer which was to draw a lot of things from, a, from different places together and then synthesize them and end up with something special. In the case of the machinery business, to make a deal. In case of writing, to come out with a, a novel article. Did you feel empty not getting to write all the time? No. So you didn't really think about it? Not really. Uh, the writing was always uh, in the back of my mind, but I was uh, quickly became enamored of the uh, used machinery business and also 
the idea of uh, getting married and the excitement of being married also, putting the two together, that was a full life. I, I didn't think I had to have the writing at that point. Mm-hmm. But I returned to it later in the 70s and in the 80s. But I have to say that I have always been fascinated by the machinery business. I also loved the chemistry uh, when I went to work between my father and Aaron Pinkert. I really I enjoyed being with Aaron. What was it about the chemistry? Can you explain? You had two people who were really very, very different. And Aaron, who tended to be passive, tended to get along with everybody. A lawyer who ended up in the machinery business. How did he end up in the machinery business? It wasn't his great love of the machinery business. It was his friendship with my father, his realization that he wasn't going to be able to make much of a living as a lawyer and feeling that my father's dynamism would allow him to be successful. His contribution was uh, tempering my father's volatility. Right, but he was more than just a psychologist. I mean, he was out there selling machines as well. Yeah, he, he was pleasant with the customers. My father actually didn't have a lot of patience for the customers. Uh, and Aaron had endless patience hmm. for the customers. He could talk to them and listen to them. And my father was tended to be thinking about the next deal and the next deal. He was the inspiration of the business. He was the passion. He was the energy. And Aaron was the person that sort of was the glue that helped hold things together. Because mm-hmm. uh, my father was hard on people at times. He was hard on himself. Plus, my father had a lot of other things that were difficult for him, particularly family problems with his mother. So I came in, and uh, I had a good relationship with Aaron. I had uh, a great relationship with my father also. But as time went by, I wanted to do more and more. My father had a lot of health problems, which allowed me to do more. But as I wanted to do more, he, I felt like his fears held me back. And I wanted to keep making deals and doing things. Fears about what? Fears about losing money. This was somebody who went through the depression. This was also somebody that dealt with depression and dealt with health issues and dealt with his uh, mother who was uh, neurotic, verging on psychotic. And it was his, his lifelong mission to somehow keep her out of a mental institution. So my father and I clashed a fair amount, but, but we also had a, a respectful and ultimately positive relationship, even though it was at times volatile. And But what my father actually did for me was that I never worried about the business. He worried about it all the time. So I feared I never had to worry about the business because he would always worry about it for me. That's kind of the way I feel right now. Mm-hmm. Have you been worrying about the business less in the last uh, year? Yes, in the last year. But prior to that, I worried about it incessantly. Uh, I'm going to end it by asking you, uh, what are you planning on writing the blog for, uh, blog about for tomorrow? Do you know yet? I don't know. Uh, I've been writing a fair amount about business issues lately uh, and dealing with change. You look at uh, Ford, says they're going to have 18 electric, electric vehicles by 2021. Wow. That's all electric vehicles by 2021. This has enormous ramifications for 
the business that we're in, Noah, because an electric car has a lot fewer screw machine parts than an internal combustion engine. What I'm thinking is a lot of people are making calculations and buying machines based on how they see uh, their economic environment over the next five to ten years. Because, I mean, you buy a machine, you're not buying it for just today. You're buying it for at least five to ten years. Mm -hmm. So the question is, what do you do? You're making money now. What do you do with your investment dollars? Or do you invest in a very uncertain economy. Yes, workers come back from China. Uh, the American economy uh, is doing very well. The uh, weak American dollar makes it easy to export. All these things are very positive in the moment. But if you look a little bit further out, you have to ask yourself, do I buy that index for a million three? Do I buy that Mori for a half a million? These are major decisions to make. Do I build that building? that seems like a good idea at the moment. So that's what I'm thinking about writing it.